The Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34 says this. For otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? For I affirm to you, brothers and sisters, by the boasting in which by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord that I died daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what good is that to me? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sober up morally and stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to you in your shame. Good morning church. Our speaker this morning is Daniel Mayfield. Daniel is the evangelist for the Church of Christ in Kingfisher, Oklahoma. Uh, he does this work with the invaluable aid and the wisdom and encouragement of his wife, Miranda. Daniel, I appreciate that you put that that way in your bio. Any of us that preach know that it, we cannot do this alone, and our wives are right by our side. They have two young boys, Judah, who is four, Zion, who is one, going on 15, I mean two, and uh, they are expecting the arrival of their daughter this December. Daniel and Miranda have served in Kingfisher for nearly three years, uh, before which they spent several years as missionaries in the Caribbean. Daniel is a graduate of both Bear Valley and Oklahoma Christian University. His great passion is to preach the good news of Jesus to anyone who will listen. And this morning we are gathered to listen. And we are excited as he comes to speak to us on the topic of convinced and conviction. Daniel, come preach the word. I always feel a little bit like Toby Keith when I have one of these things on. If you've ever seen him in concert, not that I've been to a live concert, but he seems to always have one of these little things. That's what it brings me to. I, uh, I also, I never know what to do with these clear pulpits. I always feel like I need a barricade and something that's, that I can stand behind and anchor myself in. I watched over the past couple days, I know that a lot of these preachers are free-range preachers. They can go there and there, and I tried that once when I was still in school here a number of years ago. I was at a church somewhere north of here, and my wife was there with me, and I was preaching, and there was a pulpit, and I was, she said, by the end of it, it looked like I was just marching I was pacing back and forth. And the other thing is, I'm not the tallest individual in the universe. So she, my wife said, you kind of were disappearing behind the pulpit each time you went. So from there on out, I just anchored myself in. And uh, I stand right behind this thing. Um, I, uh, I, I want to begin this morning by, first of all, expressing my appreciation and gratitude to you all and to the school and to all those who do what they do to make this what it is. It has been truly the most impactful 
thing in my ministry uh, by a long shot. I didn't know how to study the Bible before I came here. I'm still learning all the time. But between the staff and the faculty and the example here, it really rooted and grounded me in my faith. And I'm very thankful for that. So I'm glad to be up here to share a few words with you this morning. Um, Go ahead and open up that first slide if you would. The more you are convinced of the resurrection and God and things of the Spirit and the next life, the more you will be convicted in your heart. So the idea there is there's a connection between when you and your head are totally and utterly convinced to the degree there's no doubt any longer, you know this is real, it, it forms a conviction in your heart that will make a change of direction that without the being convinced is impossible to have. I, I want you to imagine if you came home from work, just say this is you, you come home from work one day, walk through your front door, open it up, and you see there on the ground a pair of shoes, and uh, you think you don't, you think you've never seen them before. Looks like a new pair of shoes. Well, you pick them up and you think, whose shoes are these? Well, they're clearly shoes that were worn by an old man. They are uh, maybe an auburn slip-on with the little tassels. You know exactly the kind that I'm talking about. You pick them up and you remember, I know whose shoes these are. These are my grandfather's. Problem is, your grandpa died. And it dawns on you, these were his shoes. He wore these every single week. Grandma made sure that he was buried in these shoes. I saw him go into the casket and lower into the ground in these shoes. So your heart starts to beat a little bit. What are these doing in my house? You just hear a familiar, shaky, robust voice of wisdom calling from around the corner in the living room, and immediately you get chills, hair stands up on your arms, behind your neck. It's the voice of your grandfather who died. You buried him. She says, come here. You go follow around, terrified. You go in, and in the flesh you see your grandfather sitting there, looking at you. He says, I have a few things that I want to share with you, and I don't have a lot of time. You may have too many questions that he will not be able to answer in that brief period, but what if he were to say to you in that moment, I need you to know that everything I lived my life for, everything that I pursued in Jesus Christ, not only is all of it true, but it was worth it in a way that I could not have fathomed on this side of the grave. How would that impact the direction of your life? Having a moment like that that so convinces you of something that nobody can prove right now. How would that impact the direction and the conviction in your heart as you go forward? I would venture to guess there would be nobody or there should be nobody who would be untouched by that. Let me give you a personal example So again, the more you are convinced, the more you will be convicted, and it goes in the reverse. The least you are, or the less you are convinced, the less you're going to be convicted. If you're only marginally convinced, if you have part of you that believes, but part that's like, I don't know, that's going to 
be borne out in your life and the way that you live, and people are going to see it. This guy's kind of waffling. The more you are convinced, the more you are convicted. I'll give you an example. When my wife and I finished school here in 2014, we immediately moved to the Caribbean. We were in the Cayman Islands, Grand Cayman, um, which, by the way, it is Cayman. So if you've been saying Cayman, that's wrong. They're the Caymanian people. We worked with them for five years and still uh, maintain close ties with them, love them very much. But we moved there. It was a new church, had been there for uh, about mm, four or five years when we got there, still really not very established. They had gone through four or five preachers in that period of time. So no stability, no consistency with this congregation we got in there, a lot of really good hearts. People, some had come from a couple other churches on the island to help aid in this plant, and some others were newer converts, and uh, I, I knew going into it, this is a church that needs some maturity. What's the best way to go about that? And through a lot of prayer and meditation, I decided the best way is to go through the Gospel of Matthew to establish what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To learn who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Because I think Matthew is really the starting place for that. I didn't know it would take me three years to get through Matthew. I preached 120-something sermons. But I remember one evening I was sitting in our makeshift living room. It was a house church. The church met in our living room every week. There were chairs and everything set up. I was sitting in there, a little table... Uh, set up in the middle of it with a couple of the pew chairs pulled up to it to eat. And I was meditating over what I was going to be preaching that next weekend. It was going to be Matthew chapter 24. Now, if you're a student here, you're well aware. Matthew chapter 24 isn't an easy chapter. It isn't an easy chapter for people who've been studying the Bible their whole lives. Scholars are all in disagreement on it. It is a, a passage of great contention. And I knew leading up to this, this is going to be a difficult one. And I also knew the gravity of getting before the people of God and presenting something that wasn't true. So I thought, I need to, I mean, not that this wasn't the case every week, that I'd be praying to God for wisdom and ensure that I expose this thing accurately. But I was praying over that and saying, God, I don't want to get up there and preach something that's false. It isn't an easy passage. And so I was making my connections. I had the whole passage laid out. I was crossing things and uh, marking things and uh, doing everything that Denny taught us to do and praying over it. And uh, I was really concerned. I'm not saying that, that. I really was. I was concerned that I could make some wrong conclusions here. So I was praying fervently. And then... At one evening, now we lived in this kind of a country area. There's not many houses by us. It was out there kind of in the bush. And heard this knock on the door after dark. This never happens. Nobody ever comes to our house. I was praying, sitting there at my table, studying this very passage. And I go and I look through this little window. And I see this young man, shy looking, tall, skinny, dark complected. Some brightness in his eyes. Standing there on the front porch. And... I uh, opened the door, and he was holding a book in his hand, and I said, how can I help you? And he just gestured, handed me this book, 
No idea what it was. It wasn't the Bible. And he said, I just wanted to bring you this. And uh, I was puzzled. And I said, can I ask why? And he said, I just felt I needed to bring it to you. I'd never seen this guy in my life. This is a small community, really small community. And uh, I said, thanks. And kind of hesitantly, had, we had a couple awkward pleasantries, and then he's, he just left, got on his bike and rolled down the street. I went in, sat down at the table, and I opened up the book. And the first chapter of the book, not only was it similar to the title of what my message was going to be that Sunday, but it was an exposition of the very text I'd been studying. I was in awe. And I sat down and I read through that chapter, and it was affirming the conclusions that I had had for that chapter. And I thought, what just happened? Did I just see an angel? And if I didn't, then God somehow orchestrated for a total stranger to randomly bring me one night a book I'd never have seen whose chapter involved the very thing I was going to be bringing that Sunday. Let me tell you, maybe, maybe I'm not bringing it in a way that resonates properly, but when that happens to me, not that I wasn't convinced before, but it brought a whole new level of, oh, God's listening. God is hearing God answers. That didn't just happen coincidentally. I wasn't sharing those things publicly. That was something nobody else would have known. And then this happened. And when that just took my faith and bolted it to the ground, I became convicted on a totally different level. I have the book in my office with a date on it. And if ever there's a moment of beginning to waver just a little bit or have a tiny inkling of doubt, I look back up at that, and it's kind of like a monument like they had in the Old Testament to look back and remember, God answers prayers, God is there, and you need to keep your conviction. The more you are convinced, the more you will be convicted. And I really believe that that's what 1 Corinthians 15, 29 through 34 is all about. Let me read this. Again, I know it was read a moment ago, but I want to read it. This is the English Standard Version. Verse 29, I'm going to read. This is my own translation. And then uh, verses 30 and following will be from the ESV. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they being baptized on behalf of them? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is a passage that's all about what it would look like to be convinced of the resurrection and what it would look like to not be convinced of the resurrection and how that would bear out in a conviction that would maybe go in two completely different directions. So this morning, here's an outline for you. I want to talk for a few minutes about what it looks like to be convinced, 
then for a few minutes about what it looks like to not be convinced. And then I want to give three imperatives that are found right here in the text for the people that are convinced. So that's how we're going to go. Go ahead and go to that next slide if you would. So this is one of those scriptures. How many have read 1 Corinthians 15, 29 and just, or maybe, just go right past it? Is anybody with me on that one? See, the thing is, in this, by the way, Wes did a fantastic job leading up to this section in that last hour. That was a powerful message, and I appreciate very much what he was saying about the doctrine of the resurrection. It, it really is the core thing. You'll still sometimes meet Christians who will argue with you and say, no, there's not going to be any kind of body on the other side. They think we'll be this floating thing. But the whole chapter is based on what happened to Jesus is what's going to happen to you. Now, I, I follow the, the flow of Paul's logic from 1 Corinthians 15, 12, all the way down to 28. It's just like, boom, boom, boom. He's like, these people are doubting or maybe denying the resurrection. Uh, maybe they didn't even know that they were fully to that stage yet. But Paul is just laying down this just really powerful argument and refutation against it. One thing after the next. And as you're reading, you're saying with Paul, amen, as he brings another point. And the resurrection has to be true because of this. And then, amen. And then, as, as, right as he's got you totally sitting there, he says, and also this. What will they do who are being baptized on behalf of the dead? Amen. Huh. What's that supposed to mean? What happened with that flow of logic? Because this is one of those things that Paul doesn't add any clarification for. When I began studying this passage, I first thought, you know what? I'll just see if there's some cross-references. Maybe there's another mention of this somewhere. Maybe there's something that Paul's written elsewhere that would shed some light on it. Well, no, there's not. It's the only instance in all the Bible. Okay, though then I thought, well, what about looking at it in Greek? Maybe that'll give a nuanced thing. Well, really didn't do a whole lot to explain it either. And so I pondered over this and meditated over this thing forever, asking, what is Paul trying to say here? Because it is inspired by the Holy Spirit to be here, and there is a reason for it. So why is it? And I remember when you're studying the Bible, if something seems to come out of left field and it doesn't seem to fit, it always fits. Even if it's not immediately understood, even if it's something that isn't intuitive, it always fits. We have to keep these things in context. So here's what I think is happening. I want you to be in your Bible. If you're not in your Bible, look at your Bible, 1 Corinthians 29, or 15, verse 29. And I want you to notice this list of rhetorical questions. And they all begin to kind of share a similar uh, direction in them. 1 Corinthians 15, the first rhetorical question is, is in verse 29. He says, what will they do 
who are being baptized on behalf of the dead. Now, he just concluded the, dead ha- the re- resurrection has to be real. So he says, what will they do who are being baptized on behalf of the dead? That's the first question. Second question comes a little bit later in that verse. If the dead aren't raised at all, why are they being baptized on their behalf? Rhetorical question number two. Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Look at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? So there are these four questions that Paul lays out, and they kind of go from this person who's way out there beyond the outer circle because he uses this third-person plural pronoun for them, which means that what he's talking about in this baptism of the dead is not something that was happening in the inner, inner circle of the apostles or the church or the Christians. This is people that are out there. What are they doing? Or why are they doing this? And notice it's they, they, and then we, and then he says I. So it goes from the people that are out beyond the circle, and then he just works his way in. So he doesn't clarify it, but also important is that he doesn't condone it. And by not including himself in it, we know that this isn't a practice that the church was to be involved in. We know it because of the pronoun use here. We also know because there's no clarification. We also know because there's not really any history on it. And we know because it's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. So baptizing yourself for someone who's already died is not something that is doctrinal. There's no precedent for it. But why is Paul mentioning it? What's his point? The point isn't to condone it. The point is to use it to a very specific rhetorical end. And if you look at the way that he frames his questions, the questions are all pointing toward, here's what happens when somebody is convinced of the resurrection. Paul's saying, look, and whether he really fought with beasts in the gladiatorial-type stadium or whether this is figurative, like he was fighting with people, it doesn't really make a difference because his body and his life was in great danger. And he's saying, look, I, as an apostle, when I was in Ephesus, fought with wild beasts. My life was on the line. Why, why in the world are we in danger every hour? Look at the apostles. Look at the prophets. Look at the people of God all through history. If there is no resurrection, why in the world would we be doing these things? And I think that that clarifies what he's asking about these people who are being baptized on behalf of the dead. The point isn't to say that they have good theology. The point is to say that they're so convinced of the afterlife that they're getting baptized for dead relatives and dead friends who've gone on. That's how convinced they are. They want it so badly that they're making up a theology to be able to cover it. I think that's what's happening here. And that makes a point. If you can be so convicted to be baptized yourself on behalf of somebody else who's dead, are we convicted enough to go and try and make disciples of people who are living? Are we using the living, breathing people who still have the ability to think? And are we doing as Paul and the apostles did, putting our life in danger? This is what he's talking about. 
The resurrection in the, in the mind of Paul was so certain that he had put every, every, all of his investments were in that. There was no investment anywhere else. He wasn't holding on to the world with one hand and holding on to heaven with another. He'd completely let go of this life with such a certainty that if my life on earth is to come to an end, there was a, a premier confidence that what was going to be on the other side was glory. The more you are convinced, the more you will be convicted. I wonder when people look on us, the church, in this world that is going haywire, do people see a convinced person in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Ask yourself that. When somebody looks on you and they see your code of conduct and your manner of life and the way that you speak and the things that you do and who you are when you're with this group as opposed to being with this group, do they see a person who is so firmly grounded on the resurrection and a certainty of it that there is no doubt in their mind where you stand? Amen. Or do they see a person who, in your mind, is kind of shifting? So you can be a chameleon. You could be with the church and kind of get into that mode for a couple hours. But you go be with this other group because a wind blows you over that way, and then you're just like that group. Church, if we're going to ever convince the world of what we have here and the good news of it, they have to see a convicted heart. They have to see a heart that is totally sold out for Jesus Christ and this resurrection. So that's what it looks like. To be convinced is to say, I'd be willing to put my life in danger. I'd even be willing to die. Some of us won't even be willing to get a little bit of scorn from a Facebook audience. Not to say that Facebook's the best place to bring it. Probably not. But we don't want to have our coworkers have their own little lunch table and we not be included in it. Those who are in college don't want their peers to see them that way. I mean, look, these Christians, Paul, the apostles, and those in this circle, they were facing actual death. That's how convinced they were. Are we convinced enough to maybe give up a friend? The more you are convinced, the more you will be convicted. Now, let's move to that next slide. Uh... When you're not convinced, you're not going to be convicted. It's just the way that it works. And I want to talk about what that, what that would look like. Notice that Paul says, he's so, he's so convinced of this, that he says, I die daily. He's not dying physically daily. He wakes up every morning and he crucifies the old man. Because the old man, he wants to come back, right? The old, the old man, the old way... The devil is always trying to put out a hook to, to get you to bite onto what that old man was. What Paul is saying, when I wake up, I die to myself. I wake up and I know I'm living for Jesus Christ. I know there's glory on the other side. So that's how I'm going to live my life. 
And it's going to affect everything about what I do in the here and now. But the alternative, this is Holy Spirit right here. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, gives this message. If the dead are not raised, this is verse 32. Look at this. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What philosophy does that describe? Hedonism. Right? Hedonism is the anthem of Western society. A life of pleasure. Fill your time, fill every moment, do everything you could ever want and do it for you. Don't, don't, don't think for a moment about this person over there or that person over here. You do you. What does it matter what that person thinks of you or how this might affect them? You don't have long on this earth. So go do you. And the Holy Spirit is actually saying, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then that is the best mode of life. You might as well go out with a bang. That's, that's, Paul is saying that that's true. And I look around at our, our society and this culture right now, and I think, because it, it's been a pretty rapid uh, decline uh, morally, right? Um, progressive is not an accurate term. We haven't progressed toward anything. It's not progress. It's, de- it's declining. But morally, we've gone downhill. Family structure is broken down. Sexual anything has been just erased. You can do whatever you want, be whatever you want. It doesn't matter. And I, I ask, why is it that our society at one time was a pretty convicted society? You know, we didn't have, we were not, it's not like we didn't have faults. Not that there weren't problems. There always have been. It's not a perfect people. But it was a pretty moral society if you look at world history and you compare it to some of these nations we see in the bible we were pretty moral we had a a a code and, and an ethic that was pretty firmly based but we also had a people who by and large believed in the resurrection and you look as our society and you think why have we gone downhill it's because god has been pushed out of everything he's been pushed out of school he's been pushed out of families he's been pushed out of the way we do our Uh, politics. He's been pushed out of really everything. And that has resulted in this kind of lifestyle. And not convicted lifestyle is one that thinks, I'm going to die tomorrow, so I'm going to drink as much as I can today. And I can't help but think when I look on the Corinthian church, and we've been hearing about them all weekend, this is a church that was greatly divided. They were pretty apathetic toward grave sexual sin. There's a man who had his stepmother and was sleeping with her. And the church didn't think anything of it. They weren't doing anything about it. They were fighting over whose gift was better. This was a church who had really forgotten love as the supreme gift. And that was not in there. And this church was a bit of a disaster. And I can't help but think, is this failure to be convinced of the resurrection rooted somehow in that? And I think it has to be. Because Paul says, if there's no resurrection, eat and drink, because you're going to die tomorrow. You go back to 1 Corinthians 11, what were they doing in the Lord's Supper? Stuffing themselves and getting drunk. Isn't that what was happening? 
How is it that they were able to do that and be that and be that way? And the reason why, brothers and sisters, is because they had, they either weren't convinced or they had doubted it altogether. And it was not central to their theology. The more convinced you are, the more convicted you will be. The less convinced you are, the less convicted you will be. So I want to give three imperatives this morning. I got one, one shot to talk to this congregation. These words are straight from Paul. But I hope that there are open ears and open hearts to hear the things that Paul does have to say. Because Paul is saying, I saw the resurrected Lord. Peter saw him. More than 500 other people saw him. We saw him. We held his hand. We looked at him in the eye. We know this is real. To the, we know it so much that we're willing to die today for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so on top of that, for the person who's totally, totally convinced, Paul says, here's what you need to do. Verse 33 and, uh, verses 33 and 34, there are three imperatives. Let me just read these verses and then we'll go through them uh, fairly briefly. Do not be deceived. That's imperative number one. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. That's imperative number two. As is right. And do not go on sinning. Which is imperative number three. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If you're to boil those commands down, they are don't be deceived, sober up, and stop sinning. So let's look at those for just a moment. First of all, don't be deceived. That carries, it carries a lot of weight with it. Because how many of us, just in general, on a day-to-day basis, feel like we're being deceived by somebody? Any amens on that? Amen. Look around in this world. Every political leader, any cultural influencer... All of the big messages that are going out and all of these standing in opposition to one another. And there are experts here who are saying this is the way. And experts on the totally opposite side saying this is the way. And you're, you're kind of uh, being tossed between them. And that's just superficial stuff. On to add to that the, the, uh, the moral code of the culture. And the kinds of things that they're teaching in high school. Like to have self-esteem. To es- to esteem self. Hmm, really? Is that something that a Christian should do? I, I wonder if there's some who haven't even thought about that. Self doesn't need to be esteemed. First thing Jesus ever said, the first thing he said to a public audience was, you want to be in the kingdom, you have to be poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First thing he ever said which is the opposite of self-esteem. We're not talking about not being confident. Paul was greatly confident in the Lord. But that's opposite of being confident in self. Being confident in the Lord or being confident in self, two different things. But the world is pushing these things all the time. And it's so easy to be deceived. Turn on your television, whether it's the news or even a wholesome program. Turn on your radio. Even if you're listening to the Christian radio station, some of the messages that are put out. And of course, if you're listening to secular radio. 
Notice how he says, don't be deceived. And here we are in a world that's got all of these false ideas going everywhere. Paul told the Colossians, don't let anybody take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Right? Well, these things are everywhere. And so I, I, I sit there and I, he says, don't be deceived. That's the command. That's the imperative. And I ask, how do you do that? How do I not be deceived in this world? And here's what he says. What's he say just afterward, after it? Bad company ruins good morals. Who are you hanging out with? And I think he means more than just the company that you keep, but what about listening to bad company on the radio? There was a pun there for an older generation. In my mind, that went over a lot better. Been practicing that one for a year. But really and truly, what about what we're listening to on the radio? The, the messages that they're putting out plainly are demonic. It, all of it is about pleasure. None of it is about God. I, don't tell me that if you're listening to those things, even if you say I don't agree with them, don't tell me that if you're listening and bringing those things into your life that it has no effect over you. Yes, it does. He says, don't be deceived. Well, you have to get out of the presence of bad company. It doesn't mean you're not going to be in the world. But what are you consuming yourself with? What are you filling yourself with? Get around good people. Fill your time with good, wholesome things. Get into the book. Listen to some hymns. Meditate over good things, whatever is true and right and lovely and good and all of those things. Because bad company ruins good morals. That's his first command. Second command is, quite literally, sober up. It doesn't mean that everybody's drunk. Of course, in Colorado, a lot of people are high. But it doesn't just mean that. You don't have to be intoxicated. You don't have to have the chemicals in your brain altered by some substance that you brought in to not be sober. It's a matter of where's your head? Where are you thinking? Are you sleeping? He literally says, sober up. Paul over in Ephesians says, make the best use of your time because the days are evil. We have to know that. How am I using my time? What is my outlook and my disposition when I wake up in the morning? Is it a sober disposition that knows Jesus Christ might come back today. I know that he's coming. I don't know when it is, but he is coming. And I know that there's a way I need to be found with my candle ablaze. And it cannot be quenched when he arrives. And therefore, what do I need to do this morning to prep myself going out into the day to be sober-minded? That's what Paul's saying. He says, don't be deceived. Sober up. Get your head into a good place. Fill your eyes with good things. Sober up. And then third, it really, you know, the ESV says don't go on sinning, which I feel laxes it maybe a little bit. It just says stop sinning. Now, the, here's one thing I hear all the time, even amongst professed Christians. We're nothing but a bunch of sinners. Okay, that is not accurate. Now, that doesn't mean we don't sin. John says in 1 John, yeah, you're never going to be totally out of sin. You'll still sin. 
There's nowhere in the Bible that a Christian's called a sinner. Paul says over in Romans chapter 5 that God saved us while we were sinners. But there's a different S that we take on when we come into Jesus Christ. No longer is our identity that of a sinner, but it's that of a what? A saint. Which means to be holy, to be set apart. We're in a different group now. It doesn't mean that there aren't things of this flesh that are going to cause hiccups and maybe a trip up and sometimes falling off the line a little bit and I need to get my course going again. But Paul does plainly say, stop sinning. And I think that we make all kinds of excuses about that because we think, well, because I have a sinful disposition and things that make me want to do sinful things, then there's really no way for me to really do what he's asking me to do. Um, But I think that's because of this whole convinced and convicted thing. Let me give you a quick story. My father was, back when he was 18, my parents got married at 19, but my dad had picked up smoking at a pretty young age, was addicted to cigarettes when he met my mom. And uh, as a preface, this was before the days of Chantix, for those that know what that is. And my mom said, I want to marry you, but I'm not going to marry a smoker. I won't have it in my house, and I won't have it around my kids. So you either give up the cigarettes, or you give me up. You cannot have both. My dad was addicted, chain smoker. Guess what? In an instant, was over cigarettes, and he never picked another one up again. He'll even tell you he didn't even have a desire to do it. What happened? There was a change in his mind. And it's, it's the most valuable change a person can ever have in their mind is that moment when you know, I cannot have it both ways. And I know this way is better, and therefore I'm done with this. This is what Paul is saying. Give that stuff up. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot serve both God and money, both God and sex, both God and pride, both God and materialism. You can only have it one way. And we know God's way is better. We know there's future glory and resurrection, so I'm done with this. So, church, stop sinning. Now, as I close, about a year, year and a half, maybe two years ago, I had the opportunity to listen to Lee Strobel. I went and listened to him. Um, A lot of you, I'm sure, have read his books. A pretty famous Christian apologist, used to be an editor, I believe, for the Chicago Tribune, really smart guy, was a total atheist, living a life of hedonism, and he'll even say, when he he was talking, he said, look, before I came to Jesus, it was all about pleasure, do whatever I want. He said, but I didn't believe in Jesus, and he was a really good researcher, he was a smart guy. So he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Why was he going to do that? He said, because I know that if you can disprove the resurrection, then everything else in Christianity falls apart. So he went at his studies with the intention of disproving the resurrection. And he says that to his surprise, it was a process, but he kept being faced with evidence that he couldn't dismiss. To where one day he said, not only can't I disprove it, But I'm convinced of it. And then he turned his whole life around. And at that day, he gave up all those other things. And he will argue 
that it's a much better life. It isn't the one that gives his body everything that it wants, but it's a much better life. The more you are convinced, the more you will be convicted. So my challenge to you, brothers and sisters, is do what you need to do to get convinced of it. And put your mind there. And let it bring you to this state where you are not being deceived, you're sober, you're not sinning in the way you once were, and you're living daily for Jesus Christ because he's coming back. We've got good news. In the next session, I believe we're going to be talking about kind of what's going to happen when that all comes. But we know that it is coming, so live that way. If you have anything that you need, maybe if you've not been living a convicted life and you're convicted by the message, I believe there's an opportunity to come forward and let an elder or one of the uh, faculty here to pray over you and see what they can do to help you. If you need anything, please come while we stand and sing.